0: It's real, I'm really happy to be here. Uh, It's nice to see some of your faces. I would love to see more of your faces if that's possible. Yeah. So um, there was a, I have a story circulating uh, around the internet um, recently. I think it happened in 2014. Uh, And this woman, this Asian woman, she's just described as an Asian woman in the article, was on a trip in Iceland and she was, uh, on a tour bus and you know, the tour bus stopped at some scenic place. And she got off the bus and, uh, freshened up, changed her clothes. Um, and then when she came back, she learned that, um, someone was missing. They said an Asian woman was missing. <laughs> uh, so she and all the others, uh, engaged in this, you know, like manhunt, basically, like that, you know, trudging through the forest in the middle of the night, trying to find this person. Uh, and then at some point, or very early in the morning, the woman realized that the person they were looking for was her. Uh, she was the Asian woman that was missing. <laughs> you imagine there's some kind of language translation. Although the thing that I wonder is, you know, normally when someone's missing, you would be shouting their name. <laughs> But for whatever reason, uh, this thing happened. And that the headline of the uh, article was Missing Woman Finds Herself in Iceland After Joining Her On Search Party. Was she missing? <laughs> was she really lost? Uh, I like this story because it, it reminds me of the way the Buddha talks about samsara. And so many of us in this life are searching. Um, Samsara literally means something like wandering in the desert. So we're wandering in this desert of human experience looking for something that will um, quench the longing, ease our pain, some set of circumstances where we can relax, rest, have a feeling of belonging and a feeling of not being burdened, and the usual strategy for achieving this, or the things that we're looking for, often take the form of um, conditions, trying to massage the conditions of this life in a way that all the things that are beloved, all the things that are pleasing, all the things that are pleasant, are kind of lined up nicely in front of us, and all the things that Uh, the Buddha would say are not dear the things that are unpleasant things that are painful we have various strategies most of us to cope with them you know maybe less in this circle than others but uh, denial and kind of pretend everything's okay even when it's not or suppression or just kind of uh, ignoring we live in a society where you know talking about death is often a taboo subject you know at the same time you know it's like one of the inevitable things that uh I would think that we would be preparing for um we realize very quickly you know that when I was a young person I I was very much aware that this was the strategy for life you know I trained as a lawyer I went to law school I worked hard, did all the things you're supposed to do, and then got the job, a coveted job. I worked for the oldest law firm in LA. The managing partner was very proud to tell me that the original phone number of this firm was two. And back in the 18, whatever's when they got the phone that it was city hall and then was <laughs> had the phone number one and they had the phone number two. Um, And yet, you know, in the face of what, you know, felt like should be satisfying achievement, uh, to be intellectually stimulated, to work with really smart people and really interesting things, to um, be paid well, all the kind of measures of success. And I found that I was actually quite miserable It's actually what brought me uh, more firmly into this path of practice with the recognition that that these kinds of things are just not ultimately satisfying in a certain kind of way. You know, like the Buddha said, all conditioned phenomena are unsatisfactory, just don't quite quench that longing or soothe the aching heart in any kind of way. And if, you know, sometimes we can line up the circumstances that they're pretty good, you know, and usually it doesn't last or or the mind changes, like circumstances stay the same, but then the mind changes. So, you know, you're a single person who meets someone and you just have this like electric connection and you know, okay, soulmates, we were definitely lovers in a distant lifetime, and then everything's good for a while, like, that's pleasant conditions. And then after about a month, you realize why you haven't kept in touch with them for 2000 years. It's not easy being in relationships with people. Mm -hmm. So one of the primary practices I've been doing in my life uh, as a daily ongoing experiment and practice is to practice not complaining. Um, which is just what it sounds like, you know. I I have um, kind of taken a vow. It's kind of like a bodhisattva vow, you know. It's a vow that you know is you're not going to achieve, but to, you take the vow as a way of pointing yourself in the right direction. And uh, I've enlisted the help of uh, my wife, my friends, people I work with, um, to point out when the habit of complaining shows it reveals itself as as it, it's a very, very strong habit. Uh and the prompt is that if they catch me complaining, then they just say, is that a complaint? Or I want to just think about it. is that a complaint? And what I notice is that even that generates complaint even the thing that I've asked them to do to help me <laughs> generates another complaint. Like the desire to complain is so, uh, it feels so important that the injustice or whatever it is I'm complaining about be voiced in some way. Um, and certainly there's a place for that. You know, there's a place to uh, raise our voices and be heard um, when we need help, when we're um, in difficult circumstances, you know, might be appropriate. But for me, it's more the, what I'm more focused on is the, you know, there's a strong intuition that complaining would be helpful, but the reality, and and maybe it's, it's kind of like uh, the idea that I would get it off my chest, that I would vent in some way, and then I would feel better about it. But what I notice in my own mind is that uh, it doesn't resolve it 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 the mind gets more and more engaged in uh sort of like self-righteousness or like the finger wagging just you know and another thing and another thing and another thing that's like the but they call papancha it just amplifies and then when it usually it ends when the people I'm complaining to can't tolerate it anymore or I just wear myself out you know but the seeds of complaining have not been uprooted it's just like that energy don't have it in me anymore to complain so in making this intention one of the first things I you know obviously I wouldn't have done this practice if I didn't have some idea that this would be helpful and that I have a mind that likes to complain but the first uh, thing I noticed was the magnitude to which Huge percentages of the things I'll say out loud are some form of complaint. Uh, I think it's just the most minor sort of complaint of like something not being quite satisfactory to the existential complaints I have about uh, humanity and how we are behaving towards each other, that, that, you know, wars are happening still, we're resolving differences with violence. And meanwhile, sort of just uh, disregarding the ecosystems that we live in. Huge percentage of my thoughts, you know, like practice not complaining. Of course, practice not complaining out loud is helpful, but the inner complaints are just relentless. A judgment, a dissatisfaction with something. Uh, Sometimes it's a lament. How can it be like this? Um, and what the teachings of the Buddha point to, is that to, to quarrel with how things are in the moment, or often the quarrel is with some fundamental law of nature. Like I might have complaints about this aging body. Um, it's really where the, where the complaint is something that I can't immediately effectuate some change, um that these complaints are actually just a barrier to equanimity. And that if one of the fruits of the practice that we seek in meditation is what the Buddha called a calm abiding in the here and now, then these complaints block that ability to be uh, calm because they, by their very nature, complaint, create a kind of agitation in the system. So when I talk about complaint, I mean an expression of some dissatisfaction that uh, has a seed of ill will, aversion, resistance, you know, and that's on a continuum from the mildly irritating to the thing that is enraging. Um, and I think important to distinguish that from a request. you know, Like when the server gets your order wrong, it need not be a complaint. It could simply be a request. Um, And in that investigation, I've sort of realized that in close relationships, familial relationships, often um, a complaint is really just a disguised request or a request with too much energy in it or a request with blaming in it. (laughs) And uh, I'm just sort of thinking of the archetypal argument that you might have with a spouse or significant other a roommate if like you know you never take out the trash you know which is a complaint but it's really like you know it would be wonderful if you took out the trash so that's another area where i'm trying to see like if i if the complaint is actually really just a request that i'm making um can i just make the requests can i make the request in a way that is uh, you know why speech that it's timely that it's beneficial It's not harsh or divisive, it's not idle. Sometimes, uh, I notice my complaints are a response to some suffering. If I have a lot of physical or emotional pain, I might be prone to complain about it. And here again, you know, like it can be helpful to speak to friends about what's difficult, to speak with a therapist without uh, our spiritual uh, leader, teacher. Um, and hopefully those people are skillful enough to not let you just spin in the negativity, but like show you that there's what Thich Han called the, the joy of the non-toothache. And like that for whatever we're going through, um, we can have a perspective that is skillful about it. One of the reasons I'm really interested in this uh, topic is uh, well, first of all, you know, there is a kind of negative negativity bias built into our neurology. As our ancestors roamed the jungle, we developed a neurology, um, a way of using our awareness that uh, is vigilant, scanning the horizons for danger, remembering the places of danger and processing that information more easily than the cues that actually lead to reward like food or other kind of um, positive things, which is as an aside is why, you know, people like Rick Hansen are, are really encouraging people to uh, take in the good, because it actually takes in, takes a little bit more time to process and be nourished by um. Even the simple pleasures of life, you know, nice conversation with a friend over a cup of coffee, um, communing with a little being or an animal, um, if you have it, to be able to walk in natural beauty, trees. Um, But our neurology, our attention is actually captured by things that are stressful, that are worrying. Um, and so the, the purveyors of information in our society that are trying to get our attention, the media, social or otherwise, politicians, corporate America, um, they know this. And so we're bombarded with messages that are uh, crafted to hijack our attention. And a key way of doing this is to stroke fear or to stroke outrage sometimes very subtle, like, you know, if you don't use this brand of deodorant, you know, people won't like you, you won't belong. It's a subtle message, but it's a message of that goes to kind of a core need that we all want to feel like we belong. So what I, I tell people who are new to meditation is, you know, if you don't take stewardship of training this mind, then because in a way the mind's always practicing something, you know, you practice a musical, musical instrument, you get good at that musical instrument. You, if you're not aware of what you're practicing, you tend to be practicing the states of mind and being that are around you. And right now that's not a pretty sight, you know, our society, there's so much anxiety and stress and depression and hopelessness in our field. Um, the Buddha described this, we're talking about karma here, Um, whatever a person frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of the mind. Whatever a person frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of the mind. So the mind that practices complaining becomes better at complaining, better at seeing all the things there are to complain about. I mentioned I'm trained as a lawyer, I often teach meditation to lawyers. I'd be surprised if we don't have some lawyers in the room. Uh and we're trained. With professional training to imagine the worst possible outcomes. <laughs> so if we're not careful, um this becomes the overarching habit of the mind in a way that can kind of uh, you probably all know people like this like it, it saps they sap it saps all the joy out of life when all you see are problems in front of you. there's a, just as an there's, you know, like, sometimes we Buddhist teachers talk about, uh like, uh, temperament, personality types. <clears throat> and it's usually taken quite lightly, but recently I discovered that uh, if you read the Visuddhi Maga, the path of purification, the, sort kind of, like, text that expounded upon and distilled the teachings of the Buddha about a thousand years after his uh, life um, there's a huge section on this temperament you know personality type and and how you uh, practice more skillfully with your temperament so the there are many temperaments but the three main temperaments are the the greedy type um, so the greedy type is the person that, walks into the room and they see the beautiful painting and they go, oh, that's wow, such a beautiful painting. Really appreciate the beauty of that, the artistry of it. And then they think, wow, you know, that painting with look crate above my mantle. Mm-hmm. You know, like the, want, the sense of wanting uh, arises. Um, the aversive type, and I put myself in that category. You know, they just see that the painting's slightly crooked <laughs> and that actually would have been better on that wall over there instead of this wall because the lighting's a little better. Um, and, you know, both, all the temperaments have their, um, their pros and their cons. So the, you know, the, the greedy person is someone who can appreciate the simple beauties of life. You know, their homes are often beautiful and very comfortable and cozy and, um, they know how to relax. Uh, they can be, you know, foodies, you know, it can be fun to be around because they, uh, They know all the things that are delicious and sumptuous and enjoyable. But then, you know, they, they want things. Sometimes the dissatisfaction comes from, you know, wanting too much or clinging too much to those desires. And then the aversive types, you know, we see all the problems that are in the world, but we also often have the skills to fix them. You know, like there can be a kind of penetrating wisdom and the, uh, in, in that that you know it's very much something we need in our world and then the third personality type the diluted person um like they don't even make it to the room they're just wandering around the hallways and not sure where they're supposed to be and uh and I share this because it's actually quite helpful like you probably have a sense immediately of where you fall sometimes you know we have a little bit of like we might be an aversive greedy type or greedy aversive type um but it's useful because we can we can practice in a way that supports our temperament. So the greedy types often practicing some form of renunciation or simplicity or simplification, um, enduring conditions that are suboptimal. And these can be helpful. Uh, and conversely, for the aversive type, you know, practicing metta, practicing the cultivation of compassion, you know, transforming the judgmental mind into the compassionate mind. And for the deluded type practicing, you know, like the the Mahasi style noting is really good for them because you just like stay present with your experience and kind of brings you here, you know, grounds you to this reality people who are, uh, Deluded are often like really creative, fantastic, Our imaginations are fantastical, and, you know, but sometimes they're not really here. <laughs> they're not in this realm with us. The Bozai talks about this phenomenon in many ways. And so my favorite uh, from the Dhammapada is translated by Gil Fransdell. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speaker act with a corrupted mind, and suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speaker act with a peaceful mind, and happiness follows like a never departing shadow. So how we speak and how we act, how we think um, profoundly affects how we experience this life we speak with the complaining mind it leads to misery when we speak with the peaceful mind uh it leads to happiness and well-being the teachings of the Buddha have a lot to say about ill will sometimes we get this translation hatred which is like the more extreme but again i i see it as a kind of a continuation um for one, ill will is seen as one of the, the three so-called poisons, the other being greed and confusion. So the, the personality type uh, are surrogates for these streams of energies that um, often keep us caught. And the the, the Buddha set a very, very high bar when it came comes to ill will. Um, It's the famous parable of the two-handed saw. Most of you have probably heard. It's for quite graphic and violent, much more so than most of the suttas, but I feel like it's, you know, by design, important um, to make a point. So the Buddha says to his followers, even if bandits were to carve you up savagely limb by limb with a two-handed saw, He among you who let his heart get angered, even at that, would not be doing my bidding. So even if bandits carve you up savagely, don't complain. (laughs) He goes on, even thus you should train yourself. Our minds will be unaffected and we will say no evil words. We will remain sympathetic with a mind of goodwill, with no inner hate. Uh, you know, this is aspirational at best, but it's pointing to, uh, an understanding that when we have the mind of ill will, or we say words that are tinged with ill will, this is actually afflictive to us. Now, the bandits are long gone. It's like, it said that like holding a grudge is like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies or, uh. But they described it as picking up a hot coal to throw at someone, and in the process, we get burned. So he goes on to say, we will keep pervading these people with an awareness imbued with goodwill. And beginning with them, we will keep pervading the all-encompassing world with an awareness imbued with goodwill. Abundant, expansive, immeasurable, free from hostility, free from ill will. This is how you should train yourselves. So you might recognize this as the Buddhist original instructions on the cultivation of metta, this attitude or way of being that is characterized by friendliness, benevolence, this very accepting kind of welcoming attitude of mind. So you can get the sense from these teachings uh, that anger is bad. We shouldn't get angry. Um, Shanti Deva says anger is the greatest evil. Patient forbearance is the greatest austerity. Whatever wholesome deeds that we've amassed over a thousand eons will be destroyed in one moment of anger. Again, kind of an extreme example, but maybe you've had the experience where there's an argument and then one person just takes that argument just that much too far and says the thing that, you know, cannot be unsaid. <laughs> and even if there's a repair, the memory of that is hanging in the air. More words from the Dhammapada. He abused me, attacked me, defeated me, robbed me. For those carrying on like this, hatred never ends. She abused me, attacked me, defeated me, robbed me. For those not carrying on like this, hatred ends. So it's the carrying on, you know, which I might call complaining. uh, Rather than keeping it it alive through this complaint or lament. Um, We can practice seeing the complaining mind, feeling into actually how, how, Well, anger is a little tricky, you know, like the, the I described it as a, uh, an arrow with a honey tip and a poison root, because there is something, you know, kind of empowering. You might get an adrenaline burst when you're angry. People might listen to you. <laughs> you might get your way. Uh, we can feed, we can mistake anger for a sense of agency. Uh, and sometimes anger can be, can lead to agency, but, um, can't just say it's unpleasant because there is a pleasantness in it but inevitably you get to the poison root and uh you know it affects the body in a profound way like kind of exhausting to be angry it manifests in all kinds of ill effects you know now we know that ulcers are caused by uh, a bacteria but um Mm. they're exacerbated (laughs) By the things that we thought used to cause them that sort of like acrid or acided personality that can come out when we're angry a lot. It's not really anger that's the issue. So you know this this comes up in spiritual communities a lot, like the person who's angry um, gets kind of shunned or people don't want to listen to it. You know, people who come to Buddhist spaces are often very conflict averse. Uh, often introverts. This like creates this combination of thing where the person who might be angry about something, and they might be angry for good reason, because you know, abusive things are happening, or or things that need care are not being attended to in some way, and uh, there's a tendency to shun them or ignore them or you know, kind of like the attitude is we should be practicing you harder because you've not uprooted all your ill will yet. <laughs> uh, and I do, I do believe that the the Buddha was very directly pointing to the potential to uproot this stream of ill will and greed and delusion. Uh, but it's an expression of the fruition of the path, like, you know, until we're fully awakened. Those streams are in all of us. Um, It's not the anger that's the problem. It's just that when when people uh, act out on anger in ways that are unconstructive, that are harmful to themselves or harmful to others. Another way um, anger or ill will is kind of tricky is that it often feels like an amorphous glob of feelings because it's usually quite layered. Often, I've noticed in myself in this exploration that uh, outrage is often a cover for heartbreak. And I'd be outraged at, uh, you know, the lack of action on climate change. But beneath that is just this sort of like grief, deep grief about it. And, you know, sometimes it's easier to be angry because it has that sense of agency. It has that sense of empowerment than it is to surrender to like the more tender emotions of a broken heart or, or grieving in some way. The heart sees anger as easier to bear maybe. Another way anger is a little bit tricky is that people sometimes don't know when they're angry. <laughs> I was having a conversation with someone the other day and I said, you know, I thought I was pretty kind about it. I said, you know, um, are you okay? You know, you seem like you're a little irritated. And she said, I'm not irritated. <laughs> and then we started laughing because she, you know, it took her a minute to like realize that she was actually irritated. And this is why I, you know, I'm, as a as a teacher, as a practitioner, I'm such a strong proponent of having a dedicated daily mindfulness practice, because it takes a certain amount of baseline mindfulness to even be aware of these patterns that are always kind of uh, lurking about. And I see the both the, the Buddha pointing or to a certain kind of radical accountability. Even if bandits saw off your limbs, ill will has no place. Uh, Sometimes people have a strong reaction to this proposition, you know, like radical responsibility, radical accountability. Um, But I think if you read the teachings, it's there. And, um, you know, the proposition that any anger that arises in this mind heart is my responsibility any reactivity for that matter, the seeds for that reactivity are in this heart, in this body, in this mind. And of course, we're affected by external conditions, but moving, it's moving away from blaming external conditions to taking responsibility, uh, which I see as a kind of empowerment, putting ourselves in the driver's seat and inviting agency through mindfulness. You know, even the thing we talk about in sort of lightweight mainstream mindfulness of the mindful pause, having that space between stimulus and response can be profoundly helpful. So one of my favorite um, ways of describing a path of practice um, is really good for metabolizing difficult energies in the body, difficult emotions. It's described by the acronym RAFT R-A-F-T Got this from Gil Franzdal. Uh So RAFT The R in RAFT stands for recognize So this is a core facet of our meditative training to be able to recognize experience uh, with more and more uh, vividness more and more intimacy more and more Uh, discernment without recognition there's really no practice (laughs) to practice with you're just in a stream of karma you know um so we learn to recognize and then the a is allow um the a is the whole point of my talk not complaining (laughs) it's not even not, not complaining it's not having a complaint that we that we learn to at least in this moment and it's not it's not a uh, uh, not proposing in inaction or that we not do the things that are useful. Uh, but in this moment, you know, the energy of ill will is present, uh, just allowing it to be present. So recognize and allow sometimes sometimes I like to say accept, accept is maybe a little more challenging. Uh, so recognize, allow, and then F is feel. And I love the simplicity of that extra uh, instruction, because you can take it however you want you know, to just to feel the experience. And I may have many manifestations in the mind and body, but just to, uh, I get a sense of that um, to see that that's connected with allowing it's like an embracing or an opening to experience um, to recognize, allow, feel. And then tea is uh teas apart. And I you know, I think a lot of what we practice in meditation is a kind of deconstruction of experience. The most common way this is talked about is uh, when any experiences, you'll notice that it has different components. So there are thoughts, there's a story, a paradigm, a view. Um, so to be aware, what, what is that paradigm? What is that thought? What is that view? You know, when I was younger, I had this this very strong sense that the world should be a just place. And that, you know, success in life should be about meritocracy and uh anyway, it's it's the it's the naive wish of a youngster. But I, I suffered a lot as I went through the world and just saw more and more how how it's not that and how, you know, so much of it is whim or like who who you know more than what you know. Like I focused the first 25 years of my life on like trying to know a lot of things developing skills and then i very quickly realized you know i should have been focusing on relationships <laughs> uh so that's a view and it's a view that uh happens to be you know not so accurate uh but seeing what's our view what's the paradigm um and then letting that be, you know, with sort of like in the meditative space, maybe in the therapeutic space or the talking to friends space, we can kind of like deeply look at our beliefs and our thoughts. Uh, usually in the meditative space, not so helpful because it just leads to a lot of mind wandering. So there's an encouragement to move to another uh aspect of the experience, which is the emotional realm, this constellation of sensations and experiences in the body that we've sort of cataloged, um, that we recognize um, as anger, sadness, anxiety. And, you know, it's presented as a, as a sequence, recognize, allow, feel, tease apart, but they're all kind of like happening at the same time, because in the teasing apart, there's a recognition and allowing and a feeling also. So you come to the emotional realm, and recognize the emotions, you allow them to be as they are, feel deeply into them. Um, this has been one of the biggest gifts to me of uh meditation practice especially in the retreat setting is how um, these energies get metabolized that uh well one they tend to appear once you settle in and two that it's just for all the problem solving strategies and ideas i might have that actually it's often as simple as shining the light of awareness on the experience opening yourself to it that those energies move and digest and metabolize. And then you might think about a third uh, layer or element of the experience, which is the visceral tactile level. So I might have a story about something I'm outraged about. (laughs) Uh, And then uh, I can feel anger in the body recognize the heat and tension and constellation of patterns that you've called anger. And then I can really just go to the level of sensation and feeling where there's warmth, where there's coolness, where there's tightness. For me, I can feel tightness in the jaw, warmth in the chest, head gets hot. So one time it's helpful to have no hair, otherwise you're always cold. I was wearing a hat uh to feel wh- how, what the energy feels like in the body is a vibratory you know, there's kind of like a impulse to lash out that's hidden in the body and almost always my, my experience is that uh what's actually happening in the body in this moment is much more manageable than the conglomeration of all these thoughts and views and ideas and opinions, emotional energy that's present. Um, There's a kind of deconstruction and simplification, you know, and a, a practice prompt I use for myself. And I feel like I'm treading into the terrain of overwhelm or being highly activated or reactive is um, what's happening in the body or how's it in the body in this moment just coming to you know because I've been meditating a long time the first thing that comes into awareness is the breath and even that you know there's a kind of muscle memory where that just begins to start the process of stabilization just by connecting with the breath. Now, Shantideva again, where would I possibly find enough leather with which to cover the surface of the earth? But wearing leather just on the soles of my shoes is equivalent to covering the whole earth with leather. I cannot restrain the external course of things, but should I restrain this mind of mine, what need would there be to restrain anything else? This is my favorite. Uh, this last paragraph is my favorite. Unruly beings are as unlimited as space. They cannot possibly all be overcome, but if I overcome thoughts of anger alone, this will be equivalent to vanquishing all foes. This will be equivalent to vanquishing all foes. Pointing again to this theme that it's the anger itself that's the affliction. So, developing goodwill and compassion, excellent ways to develop the non complaining mind. Um, you know, if you're in a. I play the guitar a little bit, say dabbler and the guitar, and uh, somebody was talking about this, and then I actually saw it happen you know if you go into a room full of guitars and you strum a chord um and then you just listen you can hear actually that the other instruments are vibrating in resonance they're kind of like in effect playing the same chord um it's called sympathetic resonance just physics basically um but i think the heart is like this too you know, we, um, when we know our emotions are contagious, because how you have like mass hysteria or, you know, like, uh, how riots happen, you know, I sort of wonder like if it could happen the other way, like if you had enough, and maybe it does, like if you have enough people in the crowd that are calm, uh, then maybe it doesn't happen, um, the um, the Maharishi Ayurveda, uh, uh, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi organization, you know, uh, they were uh, popularized TM, Transcendental Meditation, and they they have this university. At, I mean, I don't want to disparage it, but it it, it seems like it's sort of like uh, cutting edge of like what we might call New Age research. Uh, and they did a study that's quite interesting, where they had a large group of people meditating in Washington D.C. sort of continuously, uh, and they were tracking uh, crime incidents. And their claim was that during the period of time that all these people were meditating, uh, there was actually less crime in the city. You know, I don't know if this is true. I'm I'm skeptical by nature, but I love the idea of that. I love the idea. That, uh, because I do believe we're practicing not just for ourselves and all beings, but I love the idea that, like, if we develop the frequency of meta, uh, that others will, will attune to it. You know, and I would love for this to happen in a sort of global way, where we're all like kind of bringing the world into this frequency. That kind of works the other way too. Like when we when we connect with the suffering of another person, then the heart moves in that in that way. You know, the sense so is called the quivering heart. This is kind of a complete, maybe tangent or side tack, but. Um, this is something I've also really been investigating. Is like the maybe the <clears throat> like the it kind of depends on how you use all these words, but like I might say that empathy is this heart that quivers in resonance with another person's suffering. That, that you know we feel what they feel, um, and this is vital and uh, intimate familial relationships you know a child and a parent like the child's preverbal you gotta really tune in or you don't know what's going on with them uh, and we have this ability you know some of us more than others to um, not just intuit through social cues and micro expressions but actually just like something more ineffable scientists might say mirror neurons but that we just we feel what other person feels and this beautiful capacity is also a problem when the world is on fire. And every time I open the New York times or the wall street journal or the internet, you know, I'm, uh, so many, all these stories, of like so much suffering that's happening again, because these are the stories that attract the attention and get the clicks. Um, the other day I saw a link that said, uh, these five foods you eat every day are ruining your health, you know, and and, and the, and the intellectual mind recognizes this is clickbait. There's nothing going to be nothing good is going to come by clicking on this link. And yet <laughs> I clicked on the link. And I think that, that the Buddha was pointing to something really, really profound when he was giving the teachings on compassion that, that, you know, one way of relating to suffering is that we vibrate in attunement with it. The other way is that we see the suffering, appreciate the suffering, and we vibrate in the frequency of metta in response to that. I've heard it described as the difference between walking in someone's shoes. You know, you get blisters because they don't really fit. Uh, and walking alongside someone holding them ha- their hand. Or the difference between... Um, feeling with or feeling for. And uh as I said, when we feel with, you know, it can be quite useful in certain kinds of relationships, but if we're the kind of person that's feeling with all the immense suffering that's happening in the world, it's exhausting. It's collapsing. It's uh, depressing. It's not energizing. Uh, and Gaudaliu has written about this, uh, I think, fairly extensively. That the that the the heart that sees suffering and has a genuine wish that it be alleviated, this is actually a wholesome state of mind. That's actually energizing. Like, I kind of, you know, my words. I kind of see it as the difference between connecting with suffering and connecting with love. Same situation, same set of facts. But a slight, very subtle difference in how you're relating to experience and uh, maybe makes all the difference in the world. Matthew Ricardo also has some really great uh material on this. Um So when I was a kid, um, I grew up in Huntsville, Alabama. It's the home of the Marshall Space Flight Center, NASA facility. My father's a retired rocket scientist. Um, and for some reason, this small town in northern Alabama, there's a small zen, zen community. And my father has always been a sort of seeker. And so he would go to this little house that they rented where the hasanga met and uh it would take me along with them. You know, I think it was five or six, but it's sort of like the Indian way and you know they didn't have any money. So like I don't think babysitter is out of the question. So it's just sort of like I remember going all kinds of places. I think you know either they didn't care or they didn't have a sense of what it was appropriate to bring your kids uh mm. you know as new new immigrants to the country but So I'm this five-year-old, you know, I'm in a room full of people who are meditating and uh, I was a mischievous kid. So I would like, you know, get up in people's faces and blow on them and make little like, you know, what kids do or I'd sometimes sit in someone's lap and I would feel like uh, sort of like gentle embrace. And then when I would squirm around, I feel like I was being released. It was really just like, maybe my first memory of a uh, environment where, I mean, you know, the Indian ways you let kids be kids, uh, but it was different. It was like uh, appreciating me as a child. And when people would talk to me in that community, they would sort of come down to my level. And I, mean, I didn't know they were practicing this, but they were very attentive, you know, and uh, and a lot of laughter. I really like just, Got in my bones, even as a five-year-old, uh, that this is like good people, <laughs> and whatever they're doing, staring at the wall, their eyes closed, that it was you know something worthwhile. Um, and this community had been founded by a, a Korean monk who's had this vision of having hundreds of little Dharma outposts, and his vision was. Uh, far-flung places not urban centers which already had you know this is 70s urban centers already had kind of teachers floating around um so one of these was in Huntsville, Alabama and uh, he master so was his name so he came to visit one time you know to give a teaching it was a really big deal you know like the Korean masters coming uh, because otherwise it was sort of peer-led and um Big deal that the teacher was coming and was going to give teachings, and uh, my father was sort of like he had some, I don't know, treasurer or president, or he had some title. That, uh, and one of the responsibilities that came with that was that he would. We went to pick him up from the airport, and uh, you know he had been described to me as this old, you know, ancient guy. But you know, he was probably seventy. You <laughs> know, like not really that old by my standards these days and very buoyant childlike laughing a lot. Um, and so we got to this little house that was being rented for uh, the Sangha meetings. And he like, I remember he like flung up in the door, like bounded out of the car and sort of like bounded across the lawn, bounded up three steps. And he was going to go into the screen door in the back of the house where we had our meditation meeting and, He didn't realize that the screen door was shut. And in the most cartoonish way, like bounced off the screen door, rolled down a couple of of steps, rolled across the wall, and was lying on the ground, unconscious, face up. I don't think I've ever been around 30 or 40 people where it was that silent. It's like we were all kind of listening, like, is he breathing (laughs) you know what's happened here like this could be really bad Uh, and then somebody in the sangha like this is just kind of like i love the irreverence that someone in that sangha just said gosh darn it we darn killed the master (laughs) and it was so funny you know we couldn't not laugh and then about that time he sort of was coming too. And, um, his response I mean, partially because we were laughing, but his response was just to laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh. And then even like later when we kind of got, got him together and got him in the room, uh, and he was kind of hurt. Yeah. You know, Cause I noticed that he was kind of holding his arm, uh, but he would hold his arm and then he would laugh. <laughs> and I just, And I just love that, you know, what one contemplates and uh, ponders, that becomes the inclination of the mind. And this is a person who had developed their mind so well that for all the things one could feel angry or embarrassed or uh, blaming, um, he had cultivated a default state that just went to uh, have laughter, you know, laughing and being able to laugh at himself, being able to laugh at the situation I think to that day, it might be one of the most profound dharma transmissions that I received. And that was a key that, you know, I find myself here with you today, largely because of that, because when I was in the law firm and I was miserable, uh, I remembered that, you know, i kind of been in, you know, like fair weather, actually a foul weather meditator, you know, cause I'd been exposed to that. And when I was in exams, I would uh, meditate to calm down or if there's something stressful happening, but I didn't really need a practice. I My mean, life was kind of okay. Until uh, it wasn't. And then I remembered like, you know, this is a quality of being that it's actually one can cultivate and, uh, I started practicing, and then listen, 30 years later, here I am. So this thing that um, we're searching for, you know, like the woman in Iceland, it's possible that it's not lost, it's not missing. It's actually right here in every moment waiting for us to notice. So Gil Rinpoche says, uh, imagine a sky empty, spacious, and pure from the beginning. The essence of mind is like this. Imagine a sun, luminous, clear, unobstructed, and spontaneously present. The nature of mind is like this. Imagine the sun shining out impartially on us and all things, penetrating all directions. The energy of mind, which is the manifestation of compassion, is like this. Nothing can obstruct it, and it pervades everywhere. And this awareness that experiences phenomenon experience is already free, already unobstructed, not discriminating. If the ears work and a sound appears... It will appear in consciousness. Consciousness doesn't resist, it doesn't preference. The capital N mind is um, the field in which all these things arise, has the manifestation of compassion because it rejects nothing, it doesn't complain about anything. And there's the kind of what, you know, what we may call the discursive mind or the little M mind that comes in and like has all its opinions and judgments and reactivities. But when we can rest in this field, you know, sometimes it's described as resting in the knowing or turning the mind to the deathless. Well, sort of like fingers pointing at the moon um, but even just having the sense that there's this ever-present aspect of our being, or our beingness, um, that's already perfect, has been extremely helpful. Helpful to me. <laughs> I'll just end with an excerpt from Tori Zenjay's Bodhisattva Vow. How can we be ungrateful to anyone or anything? Even though someone may be a fool, we can be compassionate. If someone turns against us, speaking ill of us and treating us bitterly, it is best to bow down. This is the Buddha appearing to us, finding ways to free us from our own attachments, the ones that have made us suffer again and again and again. Now, on each flash of thought, a lotus flower blooms, and on each flower, a Buddha. May we share this mind with all beings so that we in the world together may grow in wisdom. I love the idea of, you know, whatever is hindering us, whatever is causing suffering, bowing down. Maybe that's the A and raft. Uh, and then on each flash of thought, a lotus flower bloomed. You know, the lotus, the symbol of awakening, pointing to the idea that all our thoughts, however afflictive or Pleasant, or even the complaining ones have in them a seed of liberation. The Buddha uh on each of thought a lotus flower a blues on each flower a buddha. Thank you everyone so much for your kind attention. I'm I'm so like I teach a lot of retreats, but this month I have not had any retreats to teach. So I've been doing just like a little circuit of uh, gatherings like this, and I'm I'm so appreciative that these spaces exist and that um, we share this path of practice. And uh, gives me uh, keeps the mind uplifted to know that we're all working on this project of humanity in our own way so everybody be well stay safe stay healthy till next time thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and dharma seed please visit dharma slash donate